Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is the halfest hour of science on the radio that you like. The halfest. The halfest. It's the most half. It is no. It is the most science you could jam into a half an hour that we could find. Um, and we, boy, do we have some stories for for you today. Uh, Stu, what have you got coming up? Well, I've got uh, well, it's a, a bit of a, an obituary or a tribute to a fabulous Australian scientist who passed away in May, uh, called Barbara York Maine, who is pretty much... I'd say she's Spider-Woman, but that would make her sound more like a superhero. And she is kind of a superhero of Australian spiders. She named and um, has had named after her a number of species of spiders and other arachnids. But basically, she uh, spent her entire career cataloguing and studying Australian spiders. Um, She's from Western Australia... Uh, you know, went to university when that was not something women did and became the first PhD in zoology from the University of Western Australia who was a woman and all sorts of other amazing things. So I'm going to just talk about her life's work uh, a little bit later in the show. Brilliant. Uh, And Claire? So this week on the show, I have a very special guest with me. It is Dr. Kiri Bilby, who is a senior lecturer in obstetrics and gynecology at Monash University. And Kiri is um, in the studio to answer all of my questions, but not only my questions, but um, some questions from some of our listeners around um around how fertility changes with age. So Kiri is a – she's an incredible scientist, an incredible science communicator, um, but she's also does, yeah, some um, very interesting work on um, on how fertility – or un- understands quite a lot about how and why fertility changes with age. So we're going right. to be talking about that and why that happens and um, where you can get more information about it. Fantastic and an important topic that I'm sure affects a lot of people. On with the show. fairly common fear that many people have is arachnophobia, or so we're led to believe. It seems that people are quite scared of spiders in the world. Yeah, a lot of people are. And isn't that the whole kind of stereotype that Australia, you are more justified being scared of spiders because we have scary spiders? Well, we do have, you know, a lot of, lot of parts of the world don't have any deadly spiders, and we've got quite a few uh, packed in here. But the fear of spiders... Um, is fairly common and, you know, justifiably so in some cases in Australia. We have that old song about the red back on the toilet seat. But I wanted to talk about someone uh, on the show this week who spent their entire career trying to demystify spiders. Um, so I'm talking about Australian scientist Barbara York Maine, who passed away in May. Um, but she was known as the Lady of the Spiders. 
um, for her work describing Australian and particularly Western Australian species of spider. So Barbara York was born in Western Australia in a town about 200 kilometres inland from Perth. So if you think of the West Coast, mm-hmm. it, you'd go 200 metres away from the coast and that's where she was born. What's, what's the town? Um, well, she, the, the area is called Wadjul Country. Because okay. That's named after a species of wattle, which is Acacia neurophila, which grows throughout the region. Um, it's also very good soil for growing wheat. Oh. Um, and the area is known as Western Australia's Wheat Belt. Uh, but it was native insects that caught Barbara's attention as a child. Um, and she studied, went on to study at the University of Western Australia beginning in 1947 at a time when female graduates were told uh, by people, or by visiting dignitaries, uh, the, the Lieutenant Governor of Western Australia at the time told female graduates they should stay home and raise their families once they had their degree. So that was the kind of time she That's was living very in. very helpful. It's really, you know, it's, it's really a backwards time for her to be at university. So she went on to ignore him completely and uh, became the first woman to be awarded a PhD in zoology at the University of Western Australia um, and went on to work around the world in the field of zoology, so, uh, focusing sometimes on entomology, but mostly on spiders, so entomology being insects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she decided that arachnids were her her real topic uh, of, of favour that she loved. Is that arachnology or arthropology or...? I guess, you know, I mean, I, that, I guess that's why the zoology, it's, it's uh, I guess they call it oh. arachnology, possibly. Mm. Yeah. But um, her husband uh, was employed at times by the University of Western Australia, as well as by the Western Australian government in various roles. He was also a scientist. But uh, after taking his name, she became Barbara York Main, rather than just Barbara York. She went on to work for the university, but she was never paid by the university in Uh. any official capacity, and which is unfortunate because she literally wrote the book on Australian spiders called Cleverly Spiders of Australia. So hang on, she she worked for them but wasn't paid. What was she doing for them? She was an adjunct professor and she had honorary roles and she, she had access to laboratories and, you know, all of these kind of research uh, access, but she was never a uh, a paid employee of the university, which is really... Sounds very dubious. It is very dubious. And, you know, hopefully things have changed since then. Um, but, she, yeah, she did publish a book in 1962 and has actually got 14 spiders named after her, various... Uh, species and genus names with her name in them, and a bunch of other arachnids because scorpions and other various uh, creepy crawlies are also arachnids. So she has uh, a number of them named in her honour as well. But apparently her favourite spiders of all, which she remembers from where, where she grew up in the in pretty much the outback of Western Australia, pretty much, um, were the trapdoor spiders. So trapdoor spiders are Australian uh, icon, I suppose. Uh, they're little spiders that build a burrow and have a lid on the top. And when unsuspecting prey comes past, they jump out and grab it and eat it. So, I'm the lid their... is made out of web of some sort. Or... Yeah, and and with bits of leaf and things to sort of disguise it. So, yeah. uh, so they're you know they're very well camouflaged in the in the 
forest floor kind of thing. Um, so she monitored dozens of uh, trapdoor spiders uh, to better understand their, their habits and their life cycles and how they contributed to the ecology of the Australian native bush. So over her career, she monitored up to 1,200 separate trapdoor spider nests, uh, including one single nest belonging to a spider called Number 16. So she wasn't exactly, uh, you know... Um, <laughs> I mean, 1,200 of them. How many, yeah. how many names? How many names spiders? can you come up with? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Leggy, um, yeah. Leg, Leggy 2. Spinny, yeah. Trappy. Yeah. No, Number 16. So uh, she observed the spider when Number 16 had just built her nest as a hatchling spider oh. and visited the same spider every year. Um, until she was killed by a wasp sting at the age of 43. That's what the spider was. The spider was 43 years old. How can a spider live that long? Well, this is, uh, this is the longest lived spider ever recorded officially. So apparently spiders can just keep on living for a really long time. Um, it's, it's astonishing because you wouldn't expect that like a simple like arthropod like that would... No, and I mean, it sort of makes me wonder. I know, you know, huntsmen and things like that shed their their exoskeleton and get bigger over time. Yeah. How long can they keep doing that and, and how often do they need to do it? But obviously, 43 years, there's the there's the record to break. Yeah, but uh, I imagine if it's in the same burrow, it's not getting bigger and bigger. It's just kind Yeah, of... it's kind of got to just stay the same size. But also, you know, I guess staying in the same burrow, they don't travel very far. They don't expend a lot of energy. It's sort of, you know... Conservation of energy means you may live for a long time if you're a spider. Yeah. Um, so she was uh, she was also awarded, uh, Barbara York Main was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia in 2011 for her services to conservation. And she became the first woman to be awarded the Medal of the Royal Society of Western Australia Um in the 21st century, and that medal of uh, first woman to be awarded the medal of the Royal Society of Western Australia since they started issue or started awarding these medals in 1924. So wow. no woman before her had gotten a medal from the Royal Society of WA. So she's you know groundbreaking uh, female scientist. Um, yeah, uh, she was also the subject of a documentary narrated by everyone's favourite documentary narrator, David Attenborough, in 1981, which is where she got the nickname Lady of the Spiders because that's what the documentary was called. Um, and it focused on her research into uh, trapdoor spiders. So she was also a naturalist. She wrote naturalist um, books as well. So uh, you can look up one of her books called Between Wodgill and Tor, which was published in 1967, it's widely acclaimed as a natural history of the country around where she grew up, including the, the wheat belt and how uh, changes brought about by agricultural development are actually impacting on the ecology of that area as well. So she has got a lot of books out there and a lot of publications as well. But I just thought it would be good to remember the Lady of the Spiders who passed away last month. I'm Maggie Darren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR.
My guest today is Dr. Kerry Bilby, who is a senior lecturer in obstetrics and gynaecology at Monash University. Kerry, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you very much, Claire. Um, so, Kerry, you are a reproduction expert. Yes, I, yes, yes. You are? I am. Now, can you talk us through what scientific research tells us generally about female and male fertility and how it sort of changes with age? Well, it's, I mean, it's fairly accepted now in the reproductive science community um, that for both males and females, we see fertility decline. Um, it's kind of been a bit of a stigma with men, or well, not a stigma, but kind of uh, not really seen so much to be an issue for men. But now we're seeing more and more that there are a lot of things actually associated with a decline in male fertility as well as we age. But with women, it's fairly clear because of menopause. So we know that as we kind of approach menopause, which I think on average happens at about 51 years, fertility starts to decline. You end up having it kind of subfertile years as you kind of approach this, this point. Um, but I think a lot of people are surprised to find out just exactly where and fertility starts to decline and it's actually in your mid-30s, which is, I think, shocking for some people and something that should be kind of more widely, I think, known. And is that the same for men as well? Uh, for men, the numbers that get used, it's usually around 40. Um, but it's kind of a different type of issue. It's not so much associated with um, not getting pregnant, but there's particular uh, diseases we're seeing now associated with male um, age. So things like autism, they think now are probably quite tightly associated with older sperm. So uh, there's a few things. We're starting to see a bit more evidence here and there popping up for some of these things um, where we're seeing kind of the quality of, of semen dropping. So you start to see subfertilities happening, um, but also with the introduction of particular genetic issues as well. You just mentioned a couple of those um, sort of new groundbreaking research, but in particular, what are some of the things that we didn't know 10 years ago in human reproduction that, that we know now? Well, I think probably what's happening is our attitudes towards having children is changing and so that's starting to bring uh, a lot more awareness towards what we can do with fertility or how far we can stretch it. So, I mean, 10 years ago there weren't as many fertility clinics. People were having children earlier and so we weren't seeing this kind of stressed out kind of reproductive system that we're seeing now. So on average, with fertility clinics in Australia, we're seeing people or women usually approaching around 36 years. So we're starting to see a lot more evidence of the time when people are starting to seek having children when they thought they probably would still be able to, but have now noticed that it's probably getting a bit bit harder. With men, it's a bit older. So I think the average male age for seeking fertility treatments closer to 40. So we see a bit of a difference there. Um, but there's just a lot more technology now to tell us about what's happening with the ovary, what's happening with the endocrine system. And we can pretty much draw really clear conclusions with what happens with decline in particular hormones being produced, with ovarian function, with the number of uh, follicles that, that grow on the ovary. And it's it's pretty obvious from looking at different ages that things start to drop kind of gradually in the mid-30s, but by late 30s, it becomes quite severe. Kerry, what is it in women that makes fertility decline with age? Yeah, Claire, that's a good question. There's, um, there's probably two aspects to the question to think about. The first is, well, their, their quantity and quality essentially of eggs. So the first one's quantity. And um, I mean, every female child that's born is born with the number of eggs that she'll have for entire life. So we don't make eggs as we get older. And so menopause is essentially when you run out of eggs. That's kind of our body going, okay, factory's shut down, we're done, we can't make any more, no more babies coming out of this. Um, and so 
what we start to see when you kind of get to your mid-30s and onwards is that we just see less and less eggs starting to be recruited by the ovary. So by that I mean like every month um, humans are monoovulatory, they only ovulate once. But what will happen at the start of every menstrual cycle is maybe 8 to 15 um, follicles will start to be recruited and one of those will win, essentially. So one of those will kind of become the dominant follicle, the rest of them will be suppressed and this one is the one that will ovulate and if fertilised become the baby. What we see over time is that less and less follicles are getting recruited. So we just have less. And while on average you might ovulate once a month, um, you can have months where you don't ovulate at all or you can have months where you could have multiple ovulations. As you get older, you tend to this machinery breaks down, so we don't have such strong signaling anymore. So you might only have eight ovulations a year instead of 12, which obviously is going to reduce your chance of getting pregnant at any kind of point in that year. So that's the quantity issue. The quality issue comes with just the way that eggs uh, segregate their chromosomes. And what we see is, again, the machinery in charge of pulling apart chromosomes kind of starts to break down a little bit as we age. And we can end up with eggs that have too many chromosomes or not enough. And a good example of this is Down syndrome. So this is uh, something called trisomy 21. So chromosome 21, there's three copies instead of two, and we end up with an abnormality. What usually happens, and we start to see more and more abnormalities taking place in older eggs, is that usually they'll lead to miscarriage. So there's only one or two, I think, genetic disorders that will actually lead to a live birth. Um, Down syndrome is one of them. Um, But we will start to see a lot of miscarriages. So not only is your chance of getting pregnant harder, but your chance of maintaining a pregnancy or having good implantation is also harder. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, unfortunately. More than ever, I guess, we have the tools to be able to tell um, what's actually going on, what could be the blockages or what could be the Absolutely. reasons I mean, why fertility is dropping. Yeah, I mean, we're picking up new markers all the time. So there's one called anti-malarian hormone. It's a hormone that's produced in really small quantities in growing follicles, um, which are kind of pre, pre-eggs, I guess. So eggs grow in these follicles. And obviously the more, well, not obviously, but the more eggs that you have, the, the higher your level of anti-malarian hormone or AMH would be in your blood. And um, we can see that with age, we see a drop in AMH. And by the time you've hit menopause, there's no AMH left. So it's a really clear relationship between what's happening on the ovary and what we can measure. So that's changed. Um, but also just with ovarian scanning, like we've got some great scanning technology. We can look at an ovary. We can see exactly what's happening throughout the month. Um, So you can see how many follicles are left, how many are being recruited, are we getting ovulations, um, and we can tell that that function declines over time. So there's not much mystery there in terms of (laughs) age-related infertility. We know it's definitely related. You're listening to Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network, where Claire is talking to Dr Kiri Bilby about how age affects fertility. So we had a listener um, who pointed us in the general direction of an of a, an article that came out. Um, it was in the Atlantic by Jean Twenge, um, suggesting that a often cited statistic that one in three women over thirty five will not get pregnant after a year of trying to get pregnant. Um, it actually was based in data that was uh, about 300 years old, you know, when life was very different. The women back then, you know, might have had quite a hard life or they might not have been wanting to get pregnant. So, like, you know, drawing conclusions about fertility from that population might have been, you know, somewhat 
They invalid. Might, they might be pushing it a little bit. Yeah. Might be pushing it a little bit, yes. Yeah. So is this something that you're familiar with, this data set? And I'm not familiar with the data set, but I think it would be pretty hard to take a lot of inference from it because mainly it would assume that you've asked the whole population. And usually we don't see problems with infertility until they present. So unless you were doing – unless this was like a, a question on the French census or something like that where they asked every woman over 30, had she wanted to conceive and had she conceived, it would probably be quite uh, – quite a stretch to try and make deductions about people who were presenting who couldn't have children and we still see that now so Australia actually most of the world's pretty good at collecting fertility data these days because we have a lot of clinics in Australia alone we did was 81,000 cycles uh, in 2016 so it's the latest data set that we have that's complete and um, UNSW the University of New South Wales they collect data from every clinic um every year now so we can kind of build up these huge databases to see what's happening of those patients those 81,000 cycles that kind of went through um, as I was saying before the average age of people accessing that treatment was kind of mid to late 30s Um, not everyone who goes into that walks out with a baby and the pregnancy rates for 2016 were about 18 percent so the majority of people walking into a clinic are walking out without a baby. So it's another thing to be kind of, I think, to link to this. Um, if I was going to have a message to link to this, I would link that. Um, I think a lot of people rely on the fact that we have treatments, so we have options, but don't realise that age doesn't defy those options either. So it's still much harder to go to a clinic as an older woman and get treatment. Your, your chances are still much lower than they would be otherwise. So what's the best way to get reliable data about decreasing fertility rates in a, in a population then? I think the thing that's difficult with trying to figure out what's happening in a population is that with reproduction, you'd essentially have to ask everybody if they have tried to have children and if they were successful. And we don't often run around with a clipboard asking everybody what's happened. Yeah, I mean, people have kids at different ages. People have kids and don't want to tell anybody about it. People sometimes <laughs> yeah. don't have kids. Yes. Like, so there's a lot of yeah. things that come into that, especially if it becomes you know, a psychological or a sociological issue as well that we kind of pulls away from the, the science of that. What you can do is you can ask people who've had children, so you know definitively that they've had a child, how old they were when they had the child and how long it took them to get pregnant. And most of the time what you'll see is that if you've had children younger, it was much easier to conceive and to have the baby and it tends to be a lot harder later on. So you're asking people straight up how many months were you having sex and before you... Essentially, like how long were you trying for? How long were were you trying? Yeah. And that period of time is shorter... Generally speaking, in, in general, it's a when lot shorter. Yeah, um, the the definition for infertility at the moment in Australia is having unprotected sex for a year and not conceiving. So that's essentially the way we describe someone as infertile. Maybe a better way of putting it is subfertile because we don't necessarily know that they can't have kids. It just hasn't happened in this defined period of time. But that's usually when we say to people, "Well, you should start thinking about." Um, going to a clinic, thinking about what you want to do, how you want to approach reproduction. Um, But generally it's just a lot easier below 35. (laughs) We see it in clinics all the time as well. Like even age doesn't, you know, age makes things harder in clinics. And I think some of the best data we have to look at this is that um, it's really down to the age of the oocyte. Like it's got nothing to do with the uterus. And by the oocyte you mean? The egg. Yes. Right. So there's two um, two types of what we call cycles in IVF clinics. A cycle is just generally a menstrual cycle and it's how we manipulate that cycle to try and get a woman pregnant within that kind of general hormone cycle. Um, you can have something called an autologous 
a cycle, which is where a woman will use her own egg to get pregnant, and you can have something called a donor cycle, where a woman will use a donor egg to get pregnant. And what we can see is that it doesn't matter what age you are, as long as the donor egg is young, then your chances of getting pregnant are fairly similar. But if you're older and you use an older egg or your own egg and you're already kind of late 30s, um, the chances are pretty hard. So we can actually get postmenopausal women pregnant by using donor eggs. I mean, that's something that is possible. So we know that the age of the egg is crucial, whereas the age of the woman actually doesn't matter that much. She can maintain and, and have a healthy pregnancy um, in her late 30s, early 40s, late 40s. Um, it's actually the egg needs to be from a younger a young woman. And there's a lot of research out there that's looked at that. Where's the best source of information that people can go to to sort of get up-to-date research about their reproductive options? Well, there's, a, there's quite a bit of stuff out there, but one that might be really good just um, for someone who doesn't have a, a very in-depth background of reproductive biology, um, it's a really nice site. It's um, part of a, a partnership between uh, a couple of research institutions and a couple of government institutions, and it's called um, Your Fertility. So you can go to www.yourfertility.org.au and you can go through there and see how different lifestyle aspects influence fertility, how age influences fertility, uh, what data we have, um, where these kind of ideas come from, how we can treat infertility. So there's a whole bunch of stuff on there that's really um, nicely put together and really accessible. And is that for um, male and female? Yep, absolutely. It takes two to tango. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good place. As to... we say in the, uh, the reproductive field. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good place to leave it. Dr. Kiri Bilby, thank you so much for joining us on Lost in Science today. You're very welcome. Thank you. And that is it for Lost in Science this week. Thank you both to Stu and Claire and to Dr. Kiri Bilby for telling us all about fertility and age. Now, Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR at Melbourne and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Now, uh, if you'd like to get in touch, uh, you can email us. Uh, we can be found at lostinsci at gmail.com. We can also be found on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. We can also be found on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. And we are, where else are we? We are on podcasts, apps all over the place. Mm. Uh, you can download us. If you have an opportunity to give us a good rating and review, please do so because that helps spread the um, the Lost in Science love. Uh, or you can just listen to us on the radio when same time every week. Stu, Claire, and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.